We need a revolution. Revolutionary thinking, revolutionary action. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land. It's land that was never ceded, always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. They are the oldest surviving culture on the planet. And as such, they've nurtured their land and communities for millennia before their land was stolen. And we have so much to learn from that ancient wisdom as we navigate the climate crisis. We need a climate revolution. Seriously. And when I say revolution, I mean I mean a revolution of information. We need to get the truth out about how we solve the, the climate crisis that you talk about, Tony. Just think about, for instance, the news is out now that the Europeans, the people in Europe, have saved $162 billion on energy over the last two years because of new wind and solar that they put up. Saved $162 billion. People like you and me up in Europe are paying 8% less on their energy bills than they would if they hadn't put that wind and solar into the system. And that just is an example of how we are being conned. We could have put wind and solar up long ago. We need to demand renewable energy. And if not for the climate, then because it's cheaper, as the Europeans are experiencing it right now. And meanwhile, if we don't, we're told now that here in Australia, three Australian regions will become unlivable within our lifetime due to the climate breakdown. Darwin, Broome and Port Hedland. Temperatures and humidity conditions there are going to go beyond what humans can survive. Already now in America, there are some places where it's impossible to get home insurance because of the climate crisis. Maybe what we need rather is a simply a language revolution. Instead of talking about climate, maybe we should start talking about food. Instead of being climate activists, maybe we should be food activists. Because really what we're talking about when we talk about climate collapse, we're talking about there's a crisis in the, in the farming and in the food supply, and eventually famine. So what do you, what do you think about that idea, Tony, as a climate activist? Shouldn't we maybe change the wording? and become food activists. Maybe that would change people's perspective on what we're talking about. If you think of how crazy things got with COVID and, and people in our supermarkets were fighting over toilet paper, just try to imagine what will happen when it's food. And, and our food growing areas are in dire straits. They are already. It's only going to get worse. And then you add sea level rise onto that and most of the food bowls on the planet are less than one metre. Less 
than one meter above sea level. Now we're talking at the moment we're talking about tens of meters of sea level rise that are going to happen. What's that going to do? So whichever way you look at it, we're in dire straits and that that climate revolution is needed. Colin Market. Yeah. What's your what's your perspective? Uh, having a look out in, in in other parts of the world out there. Yes, look, yeah, uh, it is. You're right. We're in dire straits, and I think back not only of uh, to the times when we were fighting each other for toilet rolls. I think back to the time when those in control of petrol put the prices up, and people were fighting over petrol pumps and complaining and fighting, and we can't see beyond that to uh, think, well, now is the time I, I need to get an EV and solar panels, and then I'm not at the mercy of, of different people. But look, uh, my global roundup, Mick, it uh, really takes on board what you were saying of the revolution of um, information, because I'm starting in France, which is part of the European press that you were talking about. And two of the most popular television channels in France have dramatically changed how they report the weather. And since the local weather is a staple of every news coverage throughout the world, this has the potential to um, to change the way that our weather is delivered to us. Because viewers in France on the channels France 2 and France 3 now get their nightly weather and climate report that uh, it's not just weather, it's weather and how the weather gets that way. It comes from a new studio. Uh, viewers still see plenty of maps dotted with temperature numbers and snazzy graphics. They've got a stylish, a really chic lady presenter whose name is Anais Bayer-Demir. She talks about how hot or cold it's going to be in Paris or Marseille and other parts of the country, just the way that ours look like. But then... She tells uh, about how the weather they are experiencing may have been affected by climate change and the overheating of the planet. The goal is not just to say it will be sunny tomorrow or it will be rain to explain why. This is Alexandra Cara, who is the editor-in-chief of France Television, said, viewers are left in no doubt that global warming is man-made and caused mainly by burning fossil fuels. Indeed, they can observe this rise in average global temperatures on screen in real time. And it's all part of a climate reawakening in French journalism. France television itself is changing not only how it presents its news, but also how it goes about covering news in general. Except in cases of urgent breaking news, France television journalists will no longer travel by plane or helicopter to report on events uh, that are inside France. They'll look for local people or they'll get their journalists to take the train. They're not going to send them in emergency, often helicopters like we do still. Now to Norway, and of the 13,342 new vehicles that were sold in Norway during May, 10,773 uh, were fully electric BEV passenger vehicles. That's 80.7%. 703, that's 5.3%, were plug-in hybrids. And another 725, that's 5.4%, were 
were new zero emission vans. And just 435 vehicles, that's 3.3% of the cars that were sold in Norway in May, that's last month, were fueled by petrol or diesel. 3%. In Australia, it's the other way around. Less than 3% are electric. And it just shows you how out of step we are with the rest of the world. And emissions dropped to just 16 grams per kilometre travelled in Norway in May. Vehicle emissions in Australia last year were 10 times that amount at 164 grams per kilometre travelled. It really just shows the point. They're using 10% that we are. And still in Scandinavia, the local airline, SAS, that Scandinavian Airlines system, this week sold the first tickets for an all-electric commercial flight between Sweden, Norway and Denmark. There were 30 seats available on three scheduled flights, which are expected to take off in 2028. The ticket prices were 1,946 krona, which recognises that SAS began in 1946. And all of the seats were sold within three days. The flight offer was really a neat way of um, advertising that SAS has set the goal of being net zero emissions by 2050. Of course, the electric-powered plane flights can only go short distances, but it, this sale of seats acknowledges they will be able to take short flight hops in Scandinavia, where most of the destinations are relatively close to each other. They're about the distance between Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so it, it will be, it's only short hops, and it can be done with electric planes. Now to Paris, where the International Energy Agency this week published its annual uh, report on global investment in energy. That's where it tallies up all the cash that's spent on producing energy. It follows the old journalism maxim that in order to find out the truth, you follow the money. Well, they did this and they found that last year the world saw about $2.8 trillion of investments in energy, with about $1.7 trillion of that going into clean energy. Now, that's the biggest single-year investment in clean energy ever, and the first time that clean energy has outspent fossil fuels. And where that money is going is pretty interesting too. First, the good news, in 2022, for every dollar that was spent on fossil fuels, $1.70 went into clean energy. Now, just five years ago, that was dead even. Clean energy's growing dominance is especially clear when it comes to solar power. This year, in 2023, for the first time, investment in solar energy is expected to beat out investment in oil production. Now, that's a stark difference from what the picture looked like a decade ago, when oil spending outpaced solar by nearly six to one. But the big money is now going into power storage. That's batteries. Battery storage investment is set to double between last year, 2022, and this year, 2023. All that new money that's going into it could change everything. 
and there are already big shifts in the battery industry because of it. Hardly a week goes by without an announcement of new battery factory somewhere. And if all of the proposals take shape, we're going to reach nearly seven terawatt hours of manufacturing capacity for lithium-ion batteries in 2030. That's enough for over 100 million EVs annually. Most of it's going to be in China, but the US and Europe are starting to rival that country. And we're beginning to get a clearer shape of how energy will be created, sold and used in the future. And it's looking good for just about every developed nation, even Australia, despite our slow start and our current addiction to fossil fuels. There's also a huge geographical imbalance and poorer countries are going to need a significant boost to help build up their electrical grids and establish new technologies. But the signs are there that the UN will be behind this push and the clean energy reorganization has the potential to address historical inequalities. And a final promising note, you know we've been covering the Sun Table, um, Mike Cannon Brooks and his uh, plan to restart the Sun Cable, which is uh, will collect solar energy in the Northern Territory and, and sell it to Singapore. Well, he's announced that he's talking to a new partner for this scheme in the Northern Territory, and the new partner is the major wind farm industry. So he's going to wind up with the biggest solar farm the biggest wind farm and the biggest battery on the planet is what he's planning. And then he's going to have the longest cable to sell it to Singapore. He thinks big, does our Mike, and that's my final item for this week's roll-up. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Dr Liz Bolton. Liz has been on before talking about her, uh, what was the essence of her PhD thesis. Uh, it's called Plan B. Liz, we've got you back on today to give our listeners an update on, on uh, Plan B and how that's all going. Uh, welcome. Thanks for your time today. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me very much. And um, I'll just note that it's actually Plan E, E for Earth. <laughs> so, yeah, where are we with Plan Earth? Um, well, I guess in terms of one one bit of good news in a, in a pre everything else being pretty grim is that there was an opportunity to uh, war game Plan E with at the Australian National University with um, ASEAN students who are doing a, a, a postgraduate course there um, and, and they're sponsored by the Department of Defence. So it was basically a whole lot of people who are, for example, um, majors or colonels within the, the Thai Army or the, you know, Singaporean Air Force and so forth. So they're, they're quite experienced operate, you know, they're, they're familiar with their areas or their, their practitioners. And, um, and we did a, a war game of um, a heat crisis scenario in the Southeast Asia where El Nino combined with climate unravelling to create, a, a, you know, a, a terrible um, crisis it was very, very interesting what happened was that, um, unfortunately, the news was bad and the news was that actually the, the governance agencies got overwhelmed and that they were very, very focused upon 
setting up credible governance and establishing careful treaties with the population for emergency response and so forth. But because they took so long to do this, what actually happened was that criminal groups got ahead of them and so that they were dealing with the hyper threat of climate environmental crisis, but um, also a whole lot of other actors came into, into play. I think this is really interesting because only just a couple of days ago, um, it was announced that the governance may have lost control of the Amazon forest and that the mafia and international crime groups were basically being able to dominate what goes on in the Amazon, which is, you know, um, illegal mining and illegal timber lobbying, of course. Um, so I think, you know, it was a bit of a red flag. This, And that is that is the purpose in, in, in a military sense of why you do war games is to identify risks. And it did pull out a pretty big risk. War games, they're like a simulation of a, of a possible situation. And, yeah, exactly. And yeah. working on response. So maybe take yeah. us through. So there was news that there were increased temperatures, were ha- high temperatures were happening. How, yeah. how did it unfold from that? How did yeah, the- I'll, um, maybe I'll step it through a bit, um, bit more slowly. The, the students were given a scenario that was scheduled for November in this year when, you know, we, it's predicted that El Nino may start having some, you know, more severe impacts. And the scenario was that the population had been suffering under this heat crisis for about six months and they'd been using all of their their best efforts within the community to manage, but they were getting exhausted and overwhelmed. And then it all reached, a, there was a, a peak um, crisis where in so, a lot of the high-rise cities in, for example, in Singapore and Jakarta, um, you'd having numbers of like, for example, 180,000 people died of um, heat exhaustion or, you know, heat because that wet bulb temperature exceeded their body's capacity to survive and that the heat impacted the energy grid. And so basically people didn't have access to cooling. So we had these vast, um, very high numbers of deaths from heat injury all of a sudden, uh, uh, 180,000 in Jakarta, I think 120,000 in Singapore, et cetera. And such events were occurring around the world in other calamities. So the scenario was that the population had asked for an emergency response and asked their governments to implement Plan E. And for the war game, the students were put into groups. One was the the governance side and the other group was um, the the hyper threat itself, which was, uh, you know, people simulating being the climate um, and being, for example, the rivers and the forests and talking about how they, the environment and the climate would respond. And another group was um, criminal elements. And then another group were simulating corporates with ill will towards the plan or powerful civil actors who were against an emergency response. So the students took on the roles of these different groups and stepped through different scenarios. So, for example, one group would say, okay, we're going to do this. And then the other group will say, well, in retaliation to that, this is what we'll be doing. And so and it was sort of each group would take their turn of saying how they would respond to the situation. And in this particular scenario, and it may have been the personality of the, the students in the group, the governance group took, um, they were very gun shy after COVID about the trust, building the trust with the population. So they they decided as a group that their most important thing was setting up a whole lot of treaties and negotiations and consultation with the population and being really grounded in truth, which was very well intentioned. But in, an, in a crisis situation, um, 
it was too slow. And in fact, in this scenario, we had we had somebody acting as a civil, just a member of the community, and there was a, a very sort of popular newsreader who ended up, you know, had, had a lot of reach in the Southeast Asia Pacific. And he got on the radio and was just blasting authorities saying, you know, we've got people dying in the streets and you're still talking about treaties after months and it's simply not good enough. And then the criminal groups basically got their momentum. They worked quicker and they were able to railroad desperate people to working for them. So we'll, you know, we'll, and they started doing things like using cyanide, for example, for fishing and uh, yeah, things unraveled pretty quickly, to be honest. It might've been partly the that that particular group of students were very cautious, but there was a lesson to come from that, that if if there is an emergency situation, if the governance agencies have to start from absolute scratch and work it through from the beginning, they're basically unprepared. And so what deduction I take from it is that, and as anyone in the security or emergency sector would know, that you have to have contingencies, you have to have plans developed um, because when the emergency hits, you don't actually have time to respond to the emergency and start from scratch working out how to respond. Mm. That's sensible. The, the real thing that you learned is that you couldn't cope, so you need to put a coping strategy in. What was the um, conclusion of the students who took part in it was would be the best start to get the anarchy out of the way and get back to organisation? Uh, I think they were too um, cautious and they underestimated the um, the sophistication and the speed of um, organised crime to exploit the situation. And, it, and I think people are proceeding with this climate emergency planning, um, forgetting that there are other hostile actors who are going to exploit the situation. So um, I think that the probably... Um, a that you needed a quicker quicker response to the people's desperate needs when when there are bodies piling up in the street and that sort of thing that you have to respond very very quickly and and make some quick decisions. One of the options they did develop, but it, they just didn't implement it quick enough, was that to have an ASEAN response. So the countries within the Southeast Asian region that still had their electricity grids could have provided backup to the countries that were really suffering. So you could have evacuated some people to those countries that still had sort of safe harbours or something like that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, th I think probably from a planning perspective is that, and I think this Amazon thing highlights exactly the same point is, and, and in fact, my research in the PhD, maybe I'm feeling a little bit smug in an awful sort of way, but it identified this, that these organised crime groups, have, as we have um, becoming very, very sophisticated, so as we have this, um, the collapse of the genuine sort of economy and a whole lot of people, this 1% versus the 99%, more and more people are being sort of forced by, by force to look after their families into joining, this is not so much in Australia, but in other more desperate areas like in South America, their income is becoming the organised crime groups who have massive portfolios across drugs, um, areas like illegal logging, illegal mining, and they've got billions of dollars of turnover and they've got helicopter gunships, they've got a lot of equipment and they're becoming very powerful. And um, those groups, um, when people don't have a genuine income from the, the normal economy, the environment becomes even more endangered because it's quick money um, to, to log forests, to um, use really sort of illegal fishing methods and all that sort of thing when people are desperate. 
you know, the more desperate people are without legitimate income and so forth, the more they're going to be forced to go down to some, some pretty desperate sort of ways of surviving. Anticipating um, the role of these organised crime groups and really start thinking about um, what's attracting people to these groups. And, and in, in Plan E, the response is to weaponise employment. And what, what that is is that Plan E creates a whole stack of employment opportunities, legitimate honourable employment for people in, in the Plan E emergency response, um, which provides people that sort of day-to-day livability security. But if, if that's not there, those organised crime groups will recruit all those people. It's sort of a battle for who, who will harness that huge human resource. Um, but I, I think the good thing was that all those people in the room, they are people who uh, they're handpicked as key leaders within each of those defence forces. So they realised how dire the situation is and how how significant the hyper threat is. And, and they will, I hope that they will take that back, that knowledge back and feed it into their their planning and their communities of interest. We, we actually had some people from our Department of Defence um, International Policy Division were there as well and people from the Australian Army, the, the head wargaming guy was there. So I think from it was a bit of a wake-up call in some respects to all of those people and a big learning thing for them. And, you know, they sort of said to me, we'll be in touch, but I haven't heard back. But I, I think in terms of teaching all those practitioners and policymakers, it was it was a really good opportunity that way, and and they were they were very excited about it. And um, you know, I guess I'm and, and and the other thing was, believe it or not, News Corp picked it up and wrote an article on it. And News Corp are the only Australian media that's covered Plan E, so that was that was surprising as well, but good as very good as well. Um, but I think that the problem is, is that that see that's a warning sign. The result of that war game and and so significant that that News Corp published it, and it occurred just before we had an actual real heatwave crisis in Southeast Asia, which we do at the moment, even before the El Ninos happened, and all these are massive um, red flags. And we know that the El Nino is still coming. We know Southeast Asia is incredibly vulnerable, and I just for the life of me, I can't understand why we're not doing emergency planning around this and. What that points to is if the security sector are doing this and then our governance agencies aren't responding to the results of this war game, um, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the real worry, I think. Well, it's, it's happening uh, in Spain right now that uh, yeah. you're, you're beginning to see in a way that Sahara, the desert from south, is coming up to the south of Europe. And in Spain, they are seriously understanding that this is a food crisis. So, I mean, don't fear climate change, but fear famine and fear organized crime. Mm. It's exactly what's happening with the Amazon at the moment. It's so worrying. I mean, it, it, this is how good these groups are, is that they are doing illegal mining now. So it's not even just the legitimate Exxon Mobil, so-called legitimate Exxon Mobil and Shell. It's now um, organized crime who are going to start doing some of this, this mining. Um, so, so Liz, uh, we have a film that uh, most people have seen and uh, which in a way gives the scenario of that world of organized crime in, a, in a, an overheated world. It's called Mad Max. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, we're underestimating the security. We are completely underestimating how dangerous this could be. And it's just incredible. I think a lot of people are watching. The, the other little bit of hope, I think the other thing that's happened since we last talked is the AUKUS um, deal and the release of the Defence Strategic Review. And that is basically all bad news. But the only little bit of hope in there is that 
the Queensland Labor government recently came out and said that they don't support AUKUS. And I believe there's a whole lot of meetings going on within the Labor Party um, at the moment where there's great division between some supporting AUKUS and some not. And so there's a little bit, and, and, there's, and there was an article in the Australian Financial Review, a letter published by a whole stack of key security people and politicians saying that they demand a review of the AUKUS strategy. So there's a tiny little bit of a window there that we might be able, there's a lot of people seeing that this isn't coherent security strategy, particularly in the climate context, and a lot of calls for our strategy to be reviewed. So I think there's a tiny bit of window that we could have a, a larger discussion about what's the real security risks at the moment. Mm, and whether eight submarines can fix it. The scenario, well, the outcome of the war game scenario sounded perfectly normal to me and what would happen in real life because the bureaucrats will want to do this much slower place and then we have the opportunist who will always come in. Yeah. The, the other thing I think has sort of changed since since we talked is, and I'm sure you're, you know, when you were talking about climate revolution, is that um, it's really quite bewildering is that we've really knuckled down into this sort of industrial era uh, military strategy with this whole, um, you know, sort of the Western countries joining up and, um, you know, the ridiculous thing in Ukraine um, and this sort of uh, constant sort of World War Three posture with China and this idea that we won't have a multipolar world, but um, we have to hold up a US-dominated um, world, and and what the result of that has been that um, or it, that has pushed de-dollarisation de and deglobalisation, and the BRICS and other countries have ha are fed up with this, and 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 they're sort of all forming alliances, and um, you know I think we're actually seeing that our unfortunately from a Western perspective, even a lot of people in the West can see it that. They have not changed and adjusted to the, the new world and the strategy, it's failing. Since we last spoke, I did a, a book chapter for um, the Oxford University Climate Security Project and uh, it should be published in the next next few months. But I, I might just mention three points that came out of that. I, I My argument is that our current strategy is based on unstable foundations for three reasons. Um, one is that it's completely disconnected from the climate environmental problem. The, the threat posture is still orientated around protecting the resource extractive industrial era system. So it's still based on logic of a pre-climate world. And thirdly, it's diverging fundamentally from the, the fundamental purpose and raison d'etre of what a security force is meant to do, which is paid for by the taxpayers and and peopled by, you know, the citizens they provide, they are the soldiers, sailors and air people, um, that we're, it's diverging too much from the needs, security needs of the people. And linked to that is that there is this greater divide where there's no discussion with the people about their security needs. It's sort of becoming this little isolated little vacuum of um, elites developing security strategies that suits their corporate needs, but it's, it's diverging too far from the community and it's also um, stopped that discussion with the community. Like, and, and we can see that in Australia where the AUKUS and the DSR, there's been virtually no community discussion. So when your security strategy diverges too far from the population who are paying for it and 
peopling it, um, that's an unstable foundation. So that I think there's a whole stack of um, it's divorced from reality and it's divorced from the people's genuine needs and it's divorced from democracy. So it's becoming very unstable and, um, you know, there's a lot of arguments. We've got this little window with this potential, a few people pushing for an AUKUS review and I, I think in the short term that's probably the, the last chance that we have to, you know, really get in another strategy. <laughs> Mm. It's a big mouthful that you present us to, Liz, and I think many of our listeners will be a little bit like, but what can I do? These these questions are so big, mm. and, and as individuals, we feel powerless. Well, can I can I say one simple thing they could do? Because I'm, I'm getting a bit exhausted with this. Plan E was um, developed, finalised in 2019, and every single climate policy group in Australia, the Climate Council, the Climate Institute, the Australian Institute, every, uh, every heel, every um, have, and, and the mainstream media, the Guardian, the Age, all of them have been part of suppressing the concept of Plan E so that it doesn't get into the narrative. So we can't challenge the dominant security strategy. So if people want to help, um, they can help get the word out that we can fight the narrative battle to say there is another concept and get, you know, we have to fight at that narrative level. And you can see now that does work because the, the Queensland Labor Party have come out rejecting AUKUS. So if you can imagine that one after another, domino after another, various states and councils come out and say, this is crap, we don't want it either, then we might be able to overturn it. But if people don't know about Plan A, they don't realise there's alternatives. And, and I would say there's no doubt... There is an organised campaign to silence Plan E. And even in Australia, we have this, um, you know, all these climate security agencies with senior um, Admiral Barry and all these sort of people, they are part of shutting down Plan E. And so one thing I have noticed is that we have um, the women's areas and the climate areas have been co-opted. So this is how serious the narrative issue is. So what listeners can do is is get in the narrative battle by getting other ideas out. And when I say the women, what I'm talking about there is that we have is all these new UN Security Council resolutions called the Women, Peace and Security Resolutions, and Australia is a signatory to these. And these are meant to be about increasing women's voices in security. All of, and we have all these institutions and people and Monash University groups and so forth who are meant to be pushing this women's peace and security thing. All of the women peace and security groups and every single feminist in Australia has shut out Plan E and are participating in silencing me. So that's that shows you the capture of the feminist space and the women's space. And then when I, I mentioned before, the client, these key climate groups are also suppressing Plan E when we're on the edge of World War Three. So what we have is capture of the main discursive spaces and groups like you are one of the few places I've been able to speak. And one thing that comes to mind with me is um, Hannah Arendt got a lot of grief for saying when the Nazi um, took power, she was critical of the civil society for not doing enough and people started, started really attacking her and saying, well, what could have we done? We would have got shot. And she had a real backlash against that. But that situation is echoing in my head at the moment that the civil society is all we have got. None of these official things, they've all been appropriated. Um, so we actually have, across the civil groups, we have to have quite a bit of guts now and start challenging the narrative and creating new spaces because there's a lot at stake. And fundamentally what's at stake is um, 
democracy, freedoms, livability. Um, it's very, I, I think things have got very, very worrying. Liz, why would these groups want to silence Plan E? Because What? it challenges the dominant, um, because I, I, I'm actually, actually positioning, saying that we, that some of these corporates such as ExxonMobil and Shell and so forth or this corporate extractive sector, which has almost got corporate capture of our governance, that in fact they are the new arbiters of violence. So I, I'm turning the security analysis onto them and saying that we have to reconsider how violence is enacted and who is actually... Um, see, the, the word threat, I'll just explain something with this. The word threat has a very specific definition in military and security studies and it talks about conscious intents to cause harm and it, it's it's different from a hazard which you know for example cyclone people used to say oh they're just they're just natural occurring phenomenons there's no conscious decision to cause harm but what i'm arguing is that actually now they know the harm that will be caused and there is a conscious deliberate decision to take actions that will harm millions of people or billions really So that is actually technically a threat, the conscious decision, knowingness of causing harm. And so because I'm I'm suggesting that those actors now need to enter mass security analysis if we're really talking about the new nature of violence and killing, that really challenges the power structure. And I, so I think that's the reason. I also think the reason is I maybe they don't want a female eco-military strategists, that it's a just sort of defies a lot of um, norms and um, insults a lot of male egos. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's um, you, I, I welcome people to contact Admiral Barry, contact Cheryl Durant, contact um, their, the Teals, contact the Climate Institute, contact the Climate Council as to why they won't look at Plan E. Yeah, it does sound like uh, we need a climate revolution. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No one seems to be interested, at, and, and this I think is the big mistake our politicians are making. They're not listening when there's a talk about, as you do, talk about how organized crime will play in, and also how mental health is going to yeah. play in. The mental health issue becomes really important because people will do unexpected things, such as suicides in the street or all sorts of things that we don't like to talk about that is happening under the surface at the moment but it's not coming up to the surface the minute suddenly it's out there in the streets it's not going to be pleasant at all and and then we have what's called you know an escalation yeah and you know i mean i'm sure you may be aware of those there's these other subgroups um that books recently come out how to blow up a pipeline mm. um so you know there are some people exploring whether to use violence to fight against this. I haven't read, I'll have to order that book, I haven't read it. But, um, you know, yeah, when when you don't have governance doing the right thing, um, and if we have corporate capture of our governance, we are going to see the spectacular failure of corporate governance in a genuine crisis that we face. It's 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 going to show how it utterly betrays the people. And, um, yeah, I think it's going to, Unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is this corporate governance is going to fail spectacularly. The other thing is um, I think people have got to be really smart now because there's so much white noise and very subtle control of the narrative. 
And the same you'll see in The Guardian and um, The Age and all that, they endlessly drum up stories about what's wrong, but they very rarely will cover solutions. Um, and I think, I think what's going on with that is that you have the, the capture of the climate space and that they'll start putting out climate solutions that suit the big end of town and, you know, totally go roughshod off over the idea of consultation as, as occurred in the Netherlands. And then this discredits the climate movement and people start thinking it's all part of, um, you know, a corrupted global elite and it's not real. Um, so the whole thing's um, very, very, the narrative is um, a real mess at the moment. Yeah. So that's, people have got to be very, um, that critical thinking and getting people who can make sense of it and see these cons for what they are and these narrative tricks. Let's have a listen here to Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was interviewed by the BBC the other day. People worldwide are angry about government because they just have excuses after excuses why they cannot get it done. I mean, think about it, that the world signed an agreement in 2015 in Paris to go and to reduce greenhouse gases by a certain percentage. Well. 70% of the countries have not really lived up to their promise. So, so now you live in one of those countries and you say to yourself, wait a minute, including Austria has not lived up to its promise. So there's 70% of the countries that have lived, not lived up to their promise. So people are angry. They say, what can I do? So they go and just do anything because they're angry and they're frustrated. So governments always find excuses after excuses why it is expensive, it's this or that. I don't know what they're talking about. It's just the will is not there. And they're worried about selling out and all of this kind of things and maybe disappointing the oil companies or the car manufacturers. It needs leadership and it needs people to come together. And one of the desperate things that people are doing is exemplified with the tire extinguishers. And who are the tire extinguishers? That's actually a guarded organization that has built a global following in just the recent month. And also here in Australia, in all the bigger cities of Australia, there is now a branch of the tire extinguishers. What they do is they go around at night and then they puncture SUVs. We need emergency action to reduce emissions immediately. We're taking actions into our own hands because our governments and politicians will not. They say their goal is to rid the roads of these massive and unnecessary vehicles. Yeah, so I, I, can I just put a, a possibly controversial comment about some of this stuff? Um, I am not 100% sure that um, approaches which impact working people working class people and citizens are actually the best approach and i i'm it could it, i think it is in some respects backfiring and that that could actually be controlled because you you know you've got to remember these fossil fuel people they all spend billions of dollars in narrative control and shaping population expectations and so forth and so you know the belief in climate has absolutely sunk now there's a stack of people who think it's a it's another it's a hoax it's a control mechanism and it's it's not true and it's a pathway to totalitarianism um so i i'm i'm worried about some of these um things where the the people who inconvenience are the the people rather than the big corporations or you know the headquarters of exxon mobile or, or so those sort of peoples um so I, I think we have to be very very careful on some of these protest things 
And you, and you, in a way, you say that to those people who are maybe listening here and who are thinking of joining the tire extinguishers. My personal thing, and I, I know it's easy. To, I haven't done it myself, so I feel a bit of a hypocrite to say it. But I think you have to target the people who are the the key wrong decision makers and leave the, the public out of it a little bit. Um, like for example, for me, I I have um, challenged a lot of these very powerful people. I, I I don't know if listeners realize this, but I was in the army. I was being shut out of the climate areas. I wrote to Angus Campbell the Chief of Defence Force, he organised an inquiry which got me terminated and I was kicked out of the army and I was basically cancelled and banned from all forms for quite a long time. Um, a few people threw me a crumb here and there. But Angus Campbell is part of the apparatus of shutting me down and I have written to him directly. I've called him out on social media um, and, and, you know, that's... I have. I am a whistleblower and I have been silenced, but I, I will attack and I have probably about 80 powerful people I have challenged on this stuff and their, their response is always the same. But I, I generally always go for those, um, the key powerful people. And I'll, I'll keep, one day I'll write a, I might write a thing of all the people I've tried and record their response so the public know that while they might stand up and grandstand about climate, the thing is they're actually part of the, they're actually shutting down new ideas. And I, I will make a public call. If there's a single feminist in this country who wants to help my voice be heard, I will welcome it. At the moment, there's not been one for four or five years and they all run with their hands screaming in the air um, when I ask them to to give support. And, and I, I just think... It, given all the sacrifices of the feminists, early feminists to get women the vote and all of that, that the state of our women's organisations is a, it's an absolute joke and it's, um, it's an embarrassment to all those women, those earlier women who advocated for women to have a position and a voice in society, um, that they're now just basically um, wanting their professorships, wanting their grants, and so they will just go with a party line. And it's, it's very sad to see so many official Appointment holding women side with corrupt power. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. If you do speak up and challenge the narrative and power, you lose your job and that's what happens. And not everybody is in a position to take that risk. So I was willing to take that risk. I'm willing to write to these people. But I, I do understand not everyone is, but I am still haunted by H Hannah Arett's comment that if civil society do not show a bit of guts now, it will be, may be too late. I'm very worried about um, who's pulling the strings at the moment and what they might be planning because they're certainly not sharing all this, you know, the global... Um, World Economic Forum, they come up with these concepts, but they, they don't have a mandate and um, they don't consult with anyone. And, you know, they're sort of assuming the lead on climate, but by us just passively accepting their lead, we think that somebody's leading, somebody's doing something, but in fact, and so we can have that false um, complacency, oh, somebody's doing something, but in fact, what if they're not or what if they're going to manipulate it in some sort of weird way? So I think, that, you know, there is a real worry of complacency and that, that is where we have to be really quite um, serious critiquing some of these these um, representatives, people in key positions and stuff. And, and I guess one thing I'm finding with democracy is that 
in a situation where we have corporate capture and a lot of these key positions, you know, the head professor of women's voices or whatever are captured people and they take the space and so they that's how they control people like me staying out of the space because they'll stand up and talk about, they might talk about climate, but they'll do it in such a way that it's not in a way that challenges the system that much. So it looks like people become complacent, like, oh, they're talking about it, they're, they're going to do something. But what real democracy I think now is instead of people grandstanding about it, um, what you actually have to do is actually create spaces for suppressed voices to be heard, which you you have done, but not many people do that. There's a lot of people um, talking about democracy, but then when you knock on their door and say, I'm a, I'm a silenced voice, they don't actually do anything. So you, it's got to move from rhetoric to action. It's a real thing that people's voices are suppressed at the moment. We know with Julian Assange, so we have to create spaces for those few people and we also have to have an awareness that those people who have been whistleblowers and and been cancelled they're often um damaged and I, I would put my hand up and say that i i've been uh, i've had trauma and and pdsd from the experiences i've gone through so they they will struggle to speak sometimes and sometimes they need they need some support because they've been through hell and they've lost their livelihoods and the effect of being shut out for all the whole time uh, affects your ability to speak confidently and um, there's a whole lot of subsequent psychological effects because um, they, they know how to break people and they try to break those alternate voices and alternate leaders. Um, so I think people have to be aware of that and provide a bit of a safe harbour um, for people who have challenged the system or have been in the fight. Mm. Liz, we would like to provide you a safe harbor right now and and take a deep breath and try to then visualize or, or explain to us the positive story of what will happen when the community out there hears your voice and understands Plan E as something that we we need to do this. What would that look like? What would begin to happen? Okay. Plan E is um, an idea that there's initially a full year of consultation and detailed planning and consultation with all communities and experts across the board on how to do an emergency response and, um, and combined with some emergency actions. But there's a year of preparation and everyone being involved in working out the solutions and that they will get trained up in some of the concepts and be part of these wargamings and scenario developments and so what's. And then we have a four years of called the Plan F, which is fast and furious. And for four years, everyone, the whole community, like a wartime mobilisation, has an ambition to clean up this planet and protect the fundamentals of security, which is our ecological system and climate system. They're, that's a foundational thing. And we've got to get that foundation done, security right first. So that is masses of people cleaning up the plastic in oceans, setting up recycling and bang, really fast things would change. That All cans, all packaging has to be fully recyclable. Bang, if every single thing that you can think of like that will get fast-tracked in four years. And we, but we have a year of preparation and planning for it and everybody involved. Also, we would all those military industrial complex, those big companies like Raytheon and all the rest of it, they will have a new security mission. They will be part of it. And one of the things that we need to get their technology and expertise on is for engineering solutions to 
the savage um, consequences we're going to face, like, for example, um, severe heat waves, you know, what I call survivability shelters, developing those, not just for humans, but survivability um, features for uh, livestock and wild wildlife. For example, it could be some sort of thing that gets air dropped in as some sort of shelter that provides um, shelter from a savage bushfire that some wildlife can get into in a, a refuge. But you get their best designers and inventors to start thinking about those big engineering solutions. Um, so say, for example, there's a, sh a shocking flood that's going to kill a whole stack of wildlife. We might have some system or some design things where the, the earth's right, you know, we create a, a raised area of earth or we actually even fly in some sort of contraptions that that creatures can climb up onto. And so anyway, there's, there's a whole field of this exciting engineering um, solutions for, for survivability. You know, all those Raytheon, all those big companies, they have got so much muscle, so much technological and engineering capability. And they say that their job is the security of the people. Well, okay, we'll do it. We've got a new mission. And the new mission is to, is to contain the hyper threat. So we bring their expertise to the fight. And that is a lot of uh, capability. And, and even, you know, you think about the corporate you know, all those corporate finance people, well, they're very, very clever. We say to them, we harness them and they come to the fight as well. And so we want the economy redesigned so that it supports us in this security mission. And I already know there's stacks of um, great economists and finance people coming up with concepts of how they could do that, but they get a mandate. The key thing is if we got a mandate for Plan E, all amazing capability across society could turn and pivot towards this new mission. And I think we could surprise ourselves with what we could achieve. And basically everyone would be involved in this. And one of the things too would be that we would, at the moment, people's frustration and their creative problem-solving ability is stymied because it's all uh, shut down and controlled by a, a corrupted group that have got a different agenda. So we will be unleashing human creative problem-solving on a, a massive scale. So even if you just think, I, I'm a bit wary about artificial intelligence, but I can see there's some good things in it, that we channel that expertise, all the artificial intelligence people, we say, well, okay, we want solutions of, you know, how to, how to drip feed plants and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, so it's, it's actually very exciting because there's a million solutions out there. One of them is raising the home force, which is um, paying a wage for people who create food in their communities and, like, let, let me just give you one little tangible, simple example of a home force type solution. Say you've got a suburban block. Hopefully there's um, one derelict house or some, if there's not, you might have to tear down one, one or two houses and create a block and you employ somebody who their job there is to grow food for everybody on that block. And we have special designed uh, shelters for the food growing that is hail-proof, storm-proof, um, heatwave-proof, so that it's the best possible design that we can have. And that person is paid. They grow food there for everybody in that block. And they could also be an expert that goes into people's yards and helps them and acts as a trainer and uh, a support person to help them grow the odd tomato and, you know, potatoes in their backyard for a lot of people who don't have the expertise in gardening. Um, so they might take that load off them, but it'd be a, a paid job. And so the, I think there's no end of the sort of solutions people would come up with. And it, it's premature of me to say them. That's just an example because they would be designed by people. 
and and one one potential idea is that on Fridays is devoted every company every school every person is Friday is devoted the day to planet care and so every company would engage in activities and whatever they've got to do for their transition on Fridays so that's you know that makes it manageable with that four day week um, idea but there's there's you know there's no end of solutions if we gave people the reins and the mission to we are going to save this planet we're not going to let Earth end up being a tip um, like a ready player one sort of world or a mad max one world we the eight billion people on this planet are going to we are going to achieve a remarkable feat of repairing and rehabilitating our earth and ensuring the least harm occurs and coming up with amazing survival capabilities and ways of rehabilitating the earth and it's going to be quite it's going to be like the renaissance it's going to be amazing and part of that is going to be a partnership between Australia and China. And we will, China will be our greatest ally in some of these ecotech manufacturing. And then so the whole stack of that money that's currently going towards militarisation, we'll have a peace treaty, an environmental peace treaty with China. And China can make fast trains for Australia, all sorts of things, exciting things could happen. I think that a lot of the Australian people have goodwill towards China. There's obvious business opportunities and things like that and cultural ties. And we, we sort of go back to that normal position Australia had of being on good terms in the Asia region. And Ch China has said they are very worried that the destruction we've seen in the Middle East and, and some of the coups and things and the, the destabilisation that's occurred in South America, they don't want that coming to the Asia-Pacific region, and I don't either. So I think we have a similar, they've seen the destruction of some of those Western interventions and the damage and chaos it leaves. And they, they're very worried this will happen in the Asia-Pacific. And we, we have had peace in the Asia-Pacific, you know, reasonable peace for a long time. And that's something to be proud of and to maintain and build on and lead the world in showing that a different way can be done. And in this, Australia becomes a leader. We stop being a follower and we actually inspire America by showing a different pathway. And we're a good ally to America because Americans at the moment are also worried about the direction of America. So it's not actually going against America. It's actually aligning with a whole stack of people in America who also want another pathway. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's part of the vision I would see. Really, what is defence about? You know, is, is it about just having guns or is it about, you know, are we really being defended if our ecosystems are being destroyed? You know, the things that prop us up as a, as a society, if they're destroyed, I mean, is the army doing this job? Yeah, I mean, I think even if you do come from a security perspective, you forget that humans are incredibly courageous people, you know, and we, we sort of get put down as so though we're hopeless and it's all too big and we can't do it. But it, it is about reconnecting with that daring and that courage that people have and, you know, to protect their children or to protect their mates in battle that I've, I've seen people like that who have that. We've all seen it, people in sport who have incredible courage, um, you know, that we do, the human being, we have got that ability to fight through awful situations um, when we have a valid goal, a worthwhile goal. And, um, you know, that is part of the human nature is to have a, a fighting spirit, but to fight for something that's worthwhile. And I think there's heaps of soldiers out there, you know, that talk about the problem of um, in America, really, really difficult recruiting people and, and the same in Australia because people don't want to fight, don't want to be the bad guys, you know, they don't, or girls. Um, so 
if there's a good mission, you know, I think that calls to something in the human spirit. People do have that. Generally, people who join the military have a, a thing of wanting to protect others. And if they feel that their mandate is and they're being co-opted by corporate agencies and they're not actually protecting the people of Australia, it doesn't sit very well with them. Exactly. So. Dare be the difference. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Be the difference I know that